0: Please do join me by taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we turn to God's Word, let's go to Him and ask for His help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we don't want to just go through the motions. We don't just want to... Speak and read and hear and the words come in one ear and go out the other. Father, your word is living and active. Your word is a lamp and a light. Your word is profitable. So Father, would you be pleased to use your word and spirit now in our lives to show us more of who you are, who we are, and all that we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's got to be one of the most common questions of all time. And it might even be one of the most important questions of all time. It can be asked honestly. It can be asked irritatingly, naggingly. And I think we can all tell the difference by the tone of voice when the question is asked. But before asking the question, what time is it? We need to first ask, what is time? I had to have some help from a dictionary. Uh, I don't know about you all, but if you were asked to define time, if you could immediately write out a good definition. I couldn't, so I had to go to a dictionary, and here's what we read in the dictionary. Time as a noun, the indefinite continued progress of existence and events in the past, present, and future regarded as a whole. Or another definition, a point of time as measured in hours and minutes past midnight or noon. Now, In addition to going to the dictionary, I wanted to go back to one of the early church fathers, Augustine. Some say Augustine. I say Augustine now. I think it can go either way. We're not around. He's not around for us to ask him. But in his confessions, he writes about time and he says this. What then is time? I know well enough what it is provided that nobody ask me. But if I am asked what it is and try to explain, I am baffled. In other words, Augustine says he understands the concept of time up to the point when someone asks him to explain it. Indeed, we have warrant in Scripture The secret things belong to God, but what God has revealed belong to us and our children. And God is God. And there are certain things we just don't understand. You know, Augustine, for his power and his rhetoric and his logic and his personal sharing of his life before knowing Jesus and after knowing Jesus, I mean, we've got a lot to respect. And, And what strikes me here is his humility, He's honest enough, he's humble enough to say, I don't know, I don't understand. It takes wisdom to know the difference between what we can and should know with certainty and what we cannot know and indeed shouldn't try to know with certainty. From our text today, um, we'll see that time is not just this measurement of minutes or hours but but rather um, a period, a a season, an appropriateness. Coming out of our text today are a couple of answers to the question. What time is it? Let's step back and and look at Ecclesiastes again from the big picture from high altitude. Our study over the next weeks is is hopefully going to keep us stay anchored to our calling to live by faith in Jesus Christ and not by sight in a fallen world, a world that we either, we don't even have to look at the news, we just have to look at our own lives, is, is full of sin and misery, full of frustration and futility, full of confusion and chaos. Ecclesiastes, as I've been saying, could be thought of as an extended commentary on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Ecclesiastes will help us observe the world around us and ask better questions. It will help us gain and maintain an eternal perspective. In a word, Ecclesiastes will help us distinguish between the temporary and the eternal and live accordingly. As we saw even at the end of Ecclesiastes, when we looked at it in that first week, it presents the necessity of fearing God in a fallen and frequently confusing and frustrating world. It wants us, the preacher wants us to, to see, to know that life without God is empty, but life with God walking with him, in relationship with him, acknowledging him, is full. Remember, Jesus said, in the world you'll have trouble, there'll be vanity, but in me you'll have peace, you'll have sanity. Ecclesiastes will will help us, as Jesus says, to take heart, to take courage, to, to be of good cheer, because it will direct us to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who when we come to faith in him, makes us sane. And as we grow in our faith in him, he keeps us sane. Remember the beginning and the ending of the book, the book ends. Remember the preacher Solomon says, all is vanity. All is like a mist, a vapor, a breath. It's, it's smoke, it's, it's here and it's gone and you can't grasp it. You can't take it. In your hands, he often will will follow all his vanity with it's a chasing after the wind. And even at the end of the book, after 12 chapters, he still comes to the conclusion that all is vanity. And yet we read those concluding remarks that there are words of delight in this book, words of pleasure, there are words of difficulty, words of pain. Those words will help provide a perspective for us. And the, the main perspective is fear God and keep his commandments. These words will call us to prepare from, for certain death and certain judgment. Indeed, by looking at the end for right off the bat, Ecclesiastes will help us to see the end of the matter and then live life backwards. Thus far, we've seen observations from under the sun And those observations set us up for recognizing that that man has a longing for something new and something lasting. And we saw the preacher Solomon head out on a quest. And he says, I've seen everything. I'm a wise man. And we felt, if you're like me, you may have felt worse after reading some of what he wrote than you did before. But he's achieving his purpose. He's showing us again what life without God is like. We saw last week in Coming Up Empty that Solomon took us down the roads of pleasure, wisdom, and toil. He, he displayed his own hedonistic life, his contemplative life, his active life. And he came to the conclusion that there is no satisfaction apart from God. And so where do we go to find purpose, meaning, satisfaction in a life of vanity? Where do you go to find sanity? Sanity. Well, Ecclesiastes 3 will help us do that because our approach to the text this morning will be first to note what the preacher observes when looking at the world around him and then to note what the preacher comes to understand about the creator and controller of the world. And so for the question, what time is it? We find two big picture answers from the text. First, it's time to recognize that control belongs to God. And second, it's time to rest content in the God who is in control. Join with me now as I read verses 1 through 15 of Ecclesiastes 3. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So let's take a look at the first answer. It's time to recognize that control belongs to God. This poem is a poem about observations of the world. It's about life under heaven, under the sun, life in a fallen world. If you were counting, you would have heard the word time 28 times in that poem, 14 pairs. And many commentators see that 14 is just double the perfect number in scripture of seven. This was not um, random. This was purposefully put together. And it's important to, to see this poem as descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not ta- telling us there's a time to, to wound and a time to heal, a time to to take away and a time to give it's not telling us to do anything it's recognizing life in a fallen world looks like this notice how verse 2 introduces the beginning and end of life on earth a time to be born and a time to die you see the cradle and the grave you see as it were the alpha and the omega of someone's earthly Life And everything in between is a summary. A summary of a range of actions and emotions. And they, they range from individual actions and to kind of corporate actions. I don't know, and one of the beauties in reading something like this is I don't know whether to be sad or glad when you read this. For me... It's a bit sad. Um, yeah, it makes great lyrics for a song from 1965. Yes, very memorable. It was hard not to think about it as I'm working and reading on this passage of Scripture. But there's a sadness to it. Because it's a, it's a reminder of paradise lost. It, it's busy. It's, it's attempting to illustrate life comprehensively. And, and, and yet Solomon is saying that there is an appropriate time for everything done under heaven. And notice how the poem ends. It ends with a time for peace. Isn't that interesting? It starts with a time to be born and it ends with a time for peace. Of course, the Hebrew word is shalom. But when you read this, it seems at first there, there's anything but peace, anything but rest. You know, after this poem, there's, there's almost a response on the part of this reader to say, Lord, would you explain this poem to me? It's, it's Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch who, who's reading Isaiah, but can you explain this to me? It's Jesus with his disciples Uh, telling them a parable and it's obviously they don't get it could could you help us and jesus explains it well i believe here in the text through solomon god hears our prayers and he and he he answers he he interprets he gives us some understanding and beginning with verse nine uh, the camera lens shifts from us looking at man's life in a fallen world to to God. It's, it's moving from under heaven to now from heaven or over the sun. Before we get going, look at verse nine and 10. Um, it's kind of an echo of what he had said earlier. He's asking the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? It's a question that Solomon is gonna ask over and over again. But after Going on with that question, he makes a great statement as to what God has done. First, we see in the first part of 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. The poem that this is interpreting, uh, it emphasizes the scope of God's sovereignty over even pairs of, of related opposites. And Solomon is calling his reader to embrace the beauty of God's comprehensive control of everything. He has made everything beautiful, everything appropriate, everything fitting in its time. The preacher here is coming to see that he's going to be able to praise God for his sovereignty, his rule over time and over eternity. So Solomon wants his reader to know that God has done a couple of things. He has made everything beautiful in its time. But also, he says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Notice how verse 11 continues. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has done something in the heart of man. He, he's given man a longing, something transcendent, something that goes beyond just the here and now. You know, it's, it's in Romans 1 where, where Paul speaks of the image of God being um, distorted and disturbed, uh, but not completely uh, destroyed there's a, a sense of divinity in all people why because they're made in the image of god and and they can suppress the truth in unrighteousness but they can't eliminate it it's going to rise to the service and and here is this great expression that god has placed into man's heart kind of a sense of time unending When I read this, I thought of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's well-known work. And he addresses this in a way I think can help all of us. And he says this. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. I mean, has he been reading Ecclesiastes? Has he been tracking with the preacher who's taken us down those roads so far? He continues, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world made for another world, made for a world that's new and unending. Lewis continues, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the, for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. No doubt, Lewis's main significant inspiration is this word from the preacher of what God has done, putting something greater than the visible and the temporary in our DNA. Even though it's corrupted by sin, it's not been eliminated. There's a longing, a longing for something. And notice how he wraps that up again. He's done this so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Even though God is putting this sense of something new and lasting, we can't figure it out exactly. God has not been pleased to reveal it to us. There is a healthy mystery to God. What he has revealed clearly belonged to us. What he has not revealed belongs to God and how does Paul say it again in Romans 11 who has known the mind of God I mean didn't Paul probably be thinking about Job when he got interrogated by God who asked him hey were you there at creation do you know how I did it do you know the details Job Paul is content To just rest. Who has known the mind of God? I haven't, he says. But we can rest. Rest in the mystery. And this mystery, Solomon is giving, as it were, permission for. So Solomon is wanting us to see that God is in control. And God's control of time is is seen most clearly, of course, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We heard earlier Paul's words to the Galatian church, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There was a time for the Messiah not to come, and there was a time for the Messiah to come. And it was when the fullness of time had come. And indeed, as Jesus begins his public ministry, what does he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the fullness of time. And as we look at Jesus's earthly ministry, we see him never late, never early, but always right on time. Always appropriate, always fitting. And indeed, the sadness that Jesus exhibits at the death of Lazarus when he delayed going. We see the beauty of Lazarus being raised from the dead. He's made everything beautiful in its time. This poem calls us to wait for God's time, to wait for God's appointed season, his appropriate time, his fitting time, to to live knowing, as we saw in verse two, that there is going to be a time to die and then to make good use of what's between our cradle and our grave, between, as it were, the womb and the tomb. Well, in view of a recognition that control belongs to God, the preacher also lets us know that it's time to rest content, to rest content in God's sovereign providence. So let's look at verses 12 through 15, resting content in the God who's in control. Notice earlier he had said, um, I have seen, verse 10, I have seen. But notice in this section in verse um Uh, 12, I perceived, and in verse 14, I perceived, I've, I've come to understand. And he says this, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I think what we see here could be, uh, could be summarized as be holy, do good, and also be happy, be joyful. It's interesting in the children's catechism, the first catechism, the question is asked is how did God create Adam and Eve? And the answer is he made them holy and happy. But we know that they fell in sin and that holiness and that happiness was tainted, tarnished, and yet sanctification growth in grace means becoming holy becoming happy doing good being joyful so he came to understand that in this fear god and keep his commandments it's it's be holy do good be happy be be joyful because notice in verse 13 how he he echoes what he said in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2 that 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 God is generous and so therefore receive God's good gift that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. As we said, I think it was last week, it's, it's common grace. You know, meal times with unbelievers talking about life and challenges and enjoying good food, good drink. It's, it's God's gift it's his kindness that in the midst of a world that feels like it's falling apart there are glimpses of grace in in these provisions of gifts eating drinking and even in the midst of toil labor difficulty thorns thistles sweat nonetheless you're beginning to see Solomon move more and more into at least in this case a a positive as it were, optimistic that, hey, if toil is vanity, but nonetheless, there is pleasure, enjoy it, receive it. So he came to understand man's call to be holy and happy, to receive God's gift. And he came to understand third, as we see in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God endures forever God's efforts are effective. They endure. They're built to last. I think of Romans 15 where it even, Paul even describes God as the God of endurance and encouragement. You know, the town of Mayfield, Kentucky looks quite a bit different now than it did. And I'm sure the builders In their day, built those buildings—the courthouse, beautiful building—built it to last for a long time, to endure into the even the next century, maybe. But we see what happens: caused by things we can't control, they're rubble. But Solomon is saying, "Wait, whatever God does, whatever God builds, whatever God puts His hand to, it's effective." And it's enduring, it will last. And why why should they, um, he, he reiterates, nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it. Now, why has God done it? Why has God built stuff to last, to endure so that people fear before him, so that they tremble, they recognize that he is the creator and they are the creature, that they understand that there's a gap and that gap can only be bridged by the God-man, Jesus. You know, a culture that we live in is obsessed not only with control in general, but time in particular you know think about time management schedules how how can we get a hold of time our our seasons and solomon is saying here's the purpose of time fear god he sums it all up at the end what is the end of the matter fear god here solomon is arguing for a reverent recognition that we are not god god is god and then he ends with somewhat of a mysterious, hard-to-understand verse. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The best I could come up with is God is just. He'll find what's lost. He'll restore what's taken. He'll right all wrongs. God, indeed, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, from before all time until after, as it were, all time. God is God and man is man, and the sooner man recognizes that, the better. In one sense, one way to summarize this, especially these last few verses, is we are completely known by God but we cannot completely know the plans and purposes of God because we are not God. Again, Augustine, erudite, scholarly, humble, wise. God is God. I'm not God. I can't explain everything, but I'm going to look to him. So God's word here causes us to recognize who is in control, and to rest content in who is control, to rest content in Him, to recognize that control belongs to God and to rest content in His sovereign control, or better, to rest content in His care for His people, as we heard at the beginning, right? What did we hear about this God? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Well, we began with a few words from Augustine. Let's end with a few words from him as well. In book one, chapter one of his confessions, he says this. Great art thou, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy power and infinite thy wisdom. And man desires to praise thee, for he is part of thy creation. He bears his mortality about him with him and carries the evidence of his sin and the proof that thou dost resist the proud. Still, he desires to praise thee, this man who is only a small part of thy creation, Thou hast prompted him that he should delight to praise thee. And then here's what many of us may remember. For thou has made us for thyself and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. Don't you see Solomon, the preacher, with a restless heart, going down this avenue and that avenue to find rest? And he's starting to come to the conclusion that God is God, he's in control, and I need to just trust and I need to enjoy, enjoy the generous gifts that God gives all men. And in particular, the saving knowledge that he gives to those that he pursues and finds. So what time is it? It's about quarter till 12. But really, based on God's word, it's time to recognize God and to rest in Him. And our restless hearts are going to find rest not in pleasure, not in the hedonistic, sensuous life. They are not going to find their rest in a wise, wisdom laced contemplative life as good as that is compared to foolishness wisdom is not the end all be all and it's not going to find rest in activity toil and labor no we find rest in God our restless hearts find rest where in God through faith in Jesus Christ Indeed, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive a gift, right? Receive a gift and rest, rely, put our whole lives in his arms. We rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. So my friends, our text today asks us a couple of questions. Have you received? And are you resting right here, right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, structured, comprehensive poem that shows up in your word, that helps us begin to reflect upon the awesomeness of the season's and periods of life. Father, we ask that you would enable us more and more to trust you even when we don't understand, when we're confused and life seems out of control. Father, help us to know that you are great and in control and that you are good and loving. And you do all things for the good purposes in the lives of your people. Oh, Father, help us to know that it's always time to recognize that you are God and in control. And that it's always time to rest content in you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.